it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Finally, step-by-step premium investment guidance for beginners. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern to decode industry jargon, silence crippling confusion, and help you overcome emotions by looking at the numbers. Your path to financial freedom Starts now. All right, folks. Well, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. I'm Dave Ahern, and today we have with me Andrew Sather, our co-host. Today it's going to be the two of us going back and forth on some interesting issues. Today we're going to talk about quantitative versus qualitative analysis of stocks. This should be an interesting go around. I know how I feel about this, but I'm not sure exactly how Andrew feels about it. I think I have an idea, but I think this could be interesting. So, Andrew, why don't you go ahead and start us off? Yeah, I mean, the guy who formulated the value chart indicator, a quant-based <laughs> system. Obviously, I might lean one way or the other. The way I kind of look at it, and I think it's a little bit contrary to what a lot of, you know, I'm, I'm a value investor, come from the value investing camp. There's a lot of belief out there that you need to have a balance of quantitative and qualitative. If we define that real quick for the beginners, qualitative is talking about the aspects of the business that are more intuitive, things like how skilled is management, Things like uh, maybe where you perceive a trend as far as supply and demand. It's 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 things that you can't put a hard number on, um, but it still can have an effect on the business. So that's qualitative, and then quantitative is everything that's strictly about the numbers, tangible data like assets, earnings, cash flow, stuff like that. So I kind of actually wanted to hear your take on it, Dave, because. I'm kind of just all about the quant. I know there's guys like Philip Fisher who wrote Common Stocks and what is that book? Common called? Stocks and Uncommon Profits. That's right. Yeah, one of one of the first books I've read um, about the stock market. He talks about a thing called Scuttlebutt, which is his way of using 
and doing qualitative analysis. He would go and talk to different executives at different stocks that he was interested in and try to get some information based off of those conversations. I think Buffett does a similar approach as well. So, and then I know uh, guys like Jay June at Old School Value, I've interviewed him before and he's talked about how there's an art to value investing and you need to balance qualitative and quantitative. I, I don't think there is a right or wrong answer and that's why we're having this discussion and having this episode. It's going to be interesting to see what are the positives and negatives of both methods. Is there one that's better than the other or should you try to merge the two? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. You know, the, so my thoughts on the, I guess the battle royale quantitative versus qualitative, I'm going to say that I'm probably a little bit more like Jay June where I think, I don't know if I could put in necessarily a hard and fast rule number wise, like 75, 25, 50, 50, anything of that nature. I know Ben Graham, who we both uh, admire quite a bit, was definitely a quant. He was definitely all about the numbers. Warren Buffett, you know, who's one of my idols and Andrews as well, he started off as very much a quant and he's kind of merged through his life into a little bit more of both. And I think I probably fall a little bit more into that as well. You know, the quantitative analysis is, is like Andrew said, it's all about the numbers, the income statements, the balance sheets, the cash flow statements, you know, looking at valuations, which I think are vital to being a good value investor and, you know, coming up with a great intrinsic value, finding a margin of safety. Those to me are the bedrocks of what I do when I try to, you know, find a company that I want to invest in. But I also, like to take into account the story of the company. I look at not necessarily a scuttlebutt because obviously, you know, I'm a, a peon. I'm not going to have access to the CEO <laughs> and be able to talk to him about, you know, what's going on with the company. But there are resources on the internet that can give you an insight into things that are going on with the company. And think about the place that you work. You have scuttlebutt at the work, the, you know, your workplace as well. You know, I've said before that I work in a bank and there's, you know, you're, you're always hearing about different things that go on with upper management in the bank and how it affects the business. And you can see kind of sometimes the correlations between the decisions that are made on, you know, our level and how they affect the business, you know, when they we get directives from upper management about how things are going to be done. I don't know that I um, feel like that there is a hard and fast rule about this. And I don't think that, you know, just being all one, well, let me rephrase that. I think having numbers is very important to what I do. And I know Andrew feels that way as well. But I also feel like that having a bit of qualitative is going to be helpful as well. I think going all qualitative and just basing it solely on rumor scuttlebutt, you know, different, you know, information you may gather from the internet, from friends, from talking to people that are involved with a company, I think that could be very dangerous because there is very much a bias that you're going to get from those kinds of things where the numbers, you know, they're not going to, they're not going to lie. You know, when you're looking at, you know, the earnings or you're looking at the cash flow statement or you're looking at the balance sheet, it's really hard to fudge, you know, some of those numbers. 
And when you talk about qualitative, you know, there's a bias. When you're talking to an employee that works for the company that they've drank the Kool-Aid and they really like the company, of course they're not going to say anything bad about the company. They're not going to tell you. They're not going to lead you in a direction that's going to you know, cause you to think negative of the company. And, you know, I'll use an example of a, a book I read, one of the first books I read when I started getting into investing was The Education of a Value Investor by Guy Spear. He talked a lot about how he kind of merged from basically being, a, you know, a very much a numbers guy, but also a qual- qualitative guy to being strictly a numbers guy. He just started distancing himself from meeting with the CEOs of companies. You know, guy has quite a bit of money in his fund. He had the Aqu- Aquamarine Fund, I believe it is. And I don't know what his um, assets under management is exactly in front of me, but he has quite a bit of money and he has access to the CEOs if he wants them. He can pick up the phone and call these people and they will take his call. But he chooses not to talk to these people because he feels like he gets a bias from talking to them, that they're going to give him information that may skew his thinking along the lines that he doesn't really want to go down that path. And I thought that was a very interesting comment that he made when I was uh, listening to the audible version of his book that he talked about that and that really had a big impact on me and you know I've also read the Philip Fisher book and I thought it was a really good book and I tried really hard to think about different ways that I could utilize some of the you know more qualitative aspects of what he does I know Warren Buffett uses a lot of those and I haven't really been able to figure that out honestly on my own But I think one of the things that I do when I'm looking at some of this is when I think about the qualitative part of it, I kind of think about the story of the company. And I'll give you an example. GameStop, which is a company that I invested in just recently, they had a horrible, horrible earnings report come out just recently. And the stock market freaked out. Uh, Everybody, you know, bailed ship. I think it lost 13% at one point that particular day. And I thought, uh oh, I'm going to trigger one of my trailing stops. And I just bought the company a couple months ago. <laughs> but, you know, the reason why I bought the company was because, you know, they're a retail company. And for those of you who are not familiar with the company, they're a video game retailer. And as a lot of people know, retail is dying kind of a slow, horrible death. And they're in the video biz and with the huge competition out there in the video biz, they've been struggling. But they're smart, and they are working towards changing the product mix of the company and moving less away from the video game part of their sales and working more towards the hardware. And one of the things that people talk a lot about on um, some of the websites that I read, like Seeking Alpha, was their, their holiday sales were horrible. And they were, but GameStop is a little bit different of a beast than Walmart or Amazon, for example. GameStop has a Christmas every time Sony or Microsoft or one of the big hardware uh, for the gaming issues a new console because everybody and their brother is going to want that new console. And so that to them is Christmas, whether that falls in July or whether that falls in September. It doesn't really matter to them. That's when their Christmas is. It's not when it falls at holiday season time. So there's a bit of a, a skewing with this company. So I guess my point with all this is that I look at the story of their 
I see the company transforming from what they were to what they're going to be. Are they there yet? No, they're not there yet, but I have confidence that they're going to get there. They've already started that, and they've made great improvements in the last year and a half, changing their product mix of their company, and I think it's going to pay them, you know, pun intended, huge dividends going forward. And I think that, to me, that's why I invested in the company. If I looked solely at the numbers, I would be reacting the way a lot of the people with you know, Seeking Alpha have reacted, where they've been very, very negative about the company. They're comparing it to Blockbuster, and that they're going to declare bankruptcy, and they're they're going you know it's a the Titanic you know you got to bail ship now, and I don't I don't think that's the case and so to me that's kind of where I come from with with the kind of the difference between quantitative and qualitative. Hey you, what's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's free ebook at stockmarketpdf.com. You won't regret it. Well, kind of like an aside, but just almost pisses me off but is more amusing and kind of hilarious is when they're making these comparisons of GameStop to Blockbuster. Like, did you even look at what the financials look like for Blockbuster before it went bust? I'll tell you, it was several years, not just one year, but several, if not four or five years of negative earnings. And you compare that to a company like GameStop where, I mean, yeah, maybe growth has slowed, but they're not anywhere near negative earnings. No, and not at all. They've got a fantastic balance sheet, and they're ridiculously cheap, uh, especially since they had that little hiccup that you talked about where <laughs> yeah, you kind of oh, yeah. almost lost your lunch, uh, almost spit it out the screen when you saw what happened. Right, but by the same token, it, I was kind of excited about it because it dropped below the price they'd originally bought it for, so it gave me the opportunity to buy some more. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you know. Yeah, um, definitely. And then, you know, any future dividends, let's say worst case, it either continues to flatline or maybe even goes lower, future dividends will just accumulate more shares, assuming you're dripping it. Yes. Oh, yes, I am. Absolutely. Yeah. So... so. So that you know that's you know that's kind of my thought on that. So you know with the qualitative part I guess you know we we both know you're a very staunch quant guy. Tell me what your thoughts are on the qualitative part of it. On the qualitative? So Yes. I did like what you said about the bias. I think biases are a huge part of investing and it's such a big effect in such a greater way than we like to even realize. I've liked to talk about in previous episodes about how just even as human beings, we don't like to admit how just naturally primal we are. And we like to think we're so sophisticated and evolved and rational. But really, you know, if, if you got aliens from another planet looking in at us and seeing the way we act and the things we do subconsciously and without thinking and without talking about, they're going to think that we're a little bit weird because there's just certain things we do. And it's just the way that humans are. So one of those things is biases. And especially, it, it's not hard to think about what kind of a bias an executive would have. So executives are obviously very heavily financially incentivized to make their company look as great as they can. They're going to be compensated. And a good chunk of compensation is going to come from stock options. So if their stock price can go up, they're going to see that value go up as well and they'll be able to cash out and take an extra long vacation or buy that second boat they always wanted. Uh, they talk to a guy like Guy Spear or Warren Buffett, some investor 
that's looking to employ a lot of capital, they're going to get on conversation with them, and it's not going to be some honest one-to-one, hey, the, you know, these are the, this is the reality of the business. They're going to prop it up, primp it up, make it look as appealing as possible because there is a financial incentive towards doing so. And the second token, there's something of a, there's another bias. I'm not sure exactly what the word is. It has something to do with like the way that people talk about the law of attraction where it seems like whenever you're, I don't know, for example, if you have a trend of going to the gym a lot and the law of attraction says that other things will appear in your life that help you towards your path or whatever that may be, it may be true or not. But what our brain does with the bias is it makes us more aware of things that are that we're that we're thinking of. So like if I'm thinking about knives or or if I pick up a passion about cutting things with knives, all of a sudden in my day to day, I'm going to see things that I never noticed before as they apply to knives or you can apply it to fitness, money, relationships, whatever it may be. And it's really just our brain basically biasing itself towards something that we're now more aware of. And so that can happen in the stock market as well, where if you're qualitatively trying to talk to different executives in this hypothetical where we have access like Fisher did, you're, you're, first off, you're only limited. You're only one person. You have a limited amount of time. There's only so many people you can really talk to and give adequate time to either research a company or try to understand what the complete picture of it is. So if you want to be qualitative already, that's just very inefficient from that sense. There's no way you can flip over enough rocks to really understand where the the most natural opportunity is. Not to say that we can do that from a quant way as well, but you try to do it as best as you can with the limited resources and time that we all have. Secondly, If you're, let's say, talking to a group of like 10 executives at a company, uh, at 10 various companies, you're going to see other pieces of information, like you said, Dave, where it kind of biases you and the way it biased Guy Spear. And so we talked about before in the efficient market hypothesis episode about how two investors can look at the same piece of information and perceive it differently just solely because of their bias and the way that they personally analyze a stock. Now, if you're trying to perceive information from what somebody, a small group of people are telling you, you might see a a report somewhere else. So like maybe some macro thing, some industry report. And because you're kind of more plugged into a certain company that you have a bias for, you might actually look at that new piece of information as more favorable as it really is. So it's almost like you have these rose-colored glasses. And just like you can fall in love with a person, you can fall in love with a stock. And I've personally had this happen to myself, and it happens actually to me all the time, where as soon as you see a couple of things that you really like, it's really easy to get excited. And pretty much every time I'm picking a stock, I think that I have the best stock pick that I've ever had. Every single month, that just always seems to happen. And what I've found is even though a stock might look great, so for example, we like to look at numbers, right? So if you look at a company like GameStop, for example, and I'm going to take, okay, let's look at a different company like, I don't know, 
company B and they have a dividend of like 4% and they have a PE of like 10. So if I'm really right now super excited about low PEs and high dividend yields, I might kind of gloss over the fact that they have a higher debt to equity or a higher price to sales than I'm usually comfortable with, especially if if there's maybe one other valuation that's really nice or if they have really explosive short-term growth. I've had that happen to myself too. Where Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. I see some sort of growth scenario or even a qualitative thing. Like you talk about the GameStop, there's other qualitative things, countless for any stock, and so it's really easy for me to get super excited about those little things. And it naturally causes me to kind of blur the other things. And if there's anything that I can really hone down and kind of solidify for people is that when you're analyzing the stock, you need to take a holistic and a complete picture approach. And it needs to be something that's not laser focused, but on the contrary, it's something where you can scan from left to right and look and see that everything looks good. So I've been in scenarios where, number one, either I get really seduced by the stock and then 
I run it through the value trap indicator and actually it would have been actually a really bad thing because I might have overlooked something in my haste and my excitement. I overlooked one single metric and when I ran it through the value trap indicator, I was like, whoa, actually, that's actually a pretty big red flag. What's far more common for me is a second scenario where I will get really excited about a stock and then run it through the value trap indicator and it's just barely higher than where I want it. So what that forces me to do is, again, to shed my biases away. If I have something that's constant every single month and that's the value trap indicator, I am making sure that it's going to hit underneath there. And so as the markets change, as situations change, as the economy changes, and as market valuations change, I'm still staying consistent towards buying stocks with the right value trap indicator value. And so from that, I guess from my own personal experience, I've seen where excitement just begets more excitement. And so you start to get down this path where a stock becomes increasingly more more uh, attractive to you. And even little things that you wouldn't even... If you look from a third-person perspective or you look from a rational, non-emotional perspective, things that don't even matter start to matter, I guess, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, like, for example, I'll look at a stock and be like, hey, that stock makes food, like a chicken or whatever. And so, oh, well, you know, everybody's going to eat chicken for a very long time, for 10, 20, 30 years. Now I like it even more. It doesn't make any logical sense because the numbers or the business model didn't change at all. But suddenly I'm finding myself liking the stock more just because of some random qualitative measure. So to counter that, I run it through the value trap indicator and make sure that these qualitative things, they could hurt or help. In the long run, it doesn't matter because I'm looking strictly from a business model perspective, strictly from a price and valuation perspective. And as long as those things change, I mean, I'm sorry, as long as those things pass, then I know that I'm consistently using the same system month after month after month. And so I'm negating any sort of bias or emotions that can get caught up with these kind of decisions. Well, that's an excellent point. So you're, in essence, what you're, you're doing is you're using the VTI as, as kind of a, a stop on your checklist to verify that you're not having any biases because you're using that system that you've created to help you eliminate a possible bias that could hurt you in the long run. Exactly. And I've had, I've seen it already where it was like, man, I really, really wanted to buy this stock, but it was just barely over. And then I come back a couple months later and I was like, well, actually it wasn't as undervalued as I thought because either the stock now dropped further or it didn't go anywhere. And so I'm like, oh, well, Maybe it was a good idea that I didn't buy the stock. Yeah, exactly. You know, one of the things that I was reading about today as I was kind of uh, studying up a little bit for our conversation tonight, Peter Lynch, who is, I know, one of your favorites, and I, I enjoy his writing quite a bit. He was very much a qualitative investor, and there's a lot of speculation that the reason why he only ran the Magellan Fund for 13 years was because he burned himself out because... There was he had to work so hard because he had so much information that he had to cover on each company. Whereas with when you do the quant style of investing, you know yes you have numbers and there's a lot of numbers to crunch, but you have formulas and you have different ratios that you can use to help you 
filter through all those companies. But if you have 150 companies you're trying to look at and you're trying to look at all the different qualitative information, that's just mind-blowingly, <laughs> you know, gigantic amount of information. And I'm sure that contributed a lot to that. Oh yeah, burnout. Burnout is yeah. real. And yes. I, but I do think, you know, all these negatives against qualitative aside, I do think you need maybe, maybe it's not qualitative per se, but it is some sort of past quant knowledge. So, for example, we've talked about in previous episodes where just because five oil stocks are all a buy on the VTI indicator doesn't mean you want to buy, go out and buy five oil stocks. So there's some, I guess, common sense things and some intuitive things that I personally use in my own approach, but on the whole, I'm 99.9% quant. Yeah. I, well, you know, it's, and let's take that a little step further, you know, using the news of something that happened a few days ago, you know, the unfortunate situation that happened on the United flight a couple of days ago, you know, the stock tanked the next day, predictably. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know there were probably a lot of people that were gobbling it up, but that's more, to me, that's more of a qualitative effect than a quantitative effect because, you know, you're buying it based on the bad news, not necessarily buying it on what the actual value of the company is. And so I think that to me is where having, you know, a foundation of having the numbers. And if it was something that you thought was, you know, maybe borderline, you know, fair value, and then this caused it to fall under that fair value, you wanted to take a, a shot at it, then, you know, by all means. But if you just bought it because, hey, you know, it just dropped in price because of all the negative stuff and, you know, not taking into account anything else about the company, then that's just, that's that's a mistake waiting to happen. So did, so I know it dropped, and then did it, like, spike up when all these people tried to, to kind of rebuy in or... You know, I'll be honest with you, I didn't look into that. I didn't really, it's not not anything that's on my radar. I just saw something in passing on, on the Bloomberg about the stock was dry, dropping quite a bit. And I just kind of chuckled because I knew it would. <laughs> as soon as I heard the news that morning, I'm like, oh yeah, <laughs> United's going to drop today. There are some things you can predict about the stock market, and that's one of them. Yeah. I mean, investors trying to be too cute, right? I mean, right. How how does that change their business model at all? It doesn't because I mean maybe they lose a little bit of demand, but at the end of the day, <laughs> I think most people who fly are are price shoppers, and right. uh, obviously they're not having any problems filling the seats <laughs> from that incident. You can no. see they got plenty of customers, and there was there's something I was going to say about shoot. Oh, it's funny you talked about how the news wanted to talk about United being such a big drop. I think it's funny because I saw a headline where it said the market cap dropped by like 900 million or something. And so I saw people on my Facebook who are obviously not really into the investing very much posts on there with those headlines. And it's funny because it sounds like a huge amount of loss, but really it ended up being like a 3% loss or something. So it's funny how these news things, and we've talked about this before too, but they skew. They skew real bad, and it's really easy to make you feel emotional. Yes. But well, I think, look at uh, the yeah. numbers. Look at the quant behind it. It's not it's not that big of a drop, and it wasn't, and it's not that big of an event. But the news needs to make their headlines. Right. Exactly. Well, you know, I I am a big believer in the last market crash that we had. I think the news had 
a fair amount to do with the effect of it because every time you turn on the news, the stock market's down, death, doom, and despair. The stock market is down, death, doom, and despair. And, you know, it just, it just feeds into it and it just makes you emotional. It makes you, you know, you, you run out and you go, Oh my God, all my stocks are losing money. My 401k is dying. You know, I gotta sell. I gotta sell. I gotta sell. And, you know, that's sometimes, yeah, absolutely. It's a great thing to do and you need to do that. But the flip side of that too is, you know, if you're, if you're reacting on emotion and you're thinking just the qualitative part of it as opposed to the quantitative part of it, if you've done your research, you know the value of the business and, you know, this event is not affecting the value of that business, then why in the world, why in the world would you sell? Yeah. To be fair, though, I mean, that is kind of scary. Lehman and Bear and, yeah. Fan, you know, Fannie Freddie, all these, that's, that's like Wall Street, Wall Street. Yeah. So <laughs> Yeah, very true. New, yeah, very true. You know, People who worked at the news media companies and they, their job was probably super easy. Yeah. They just opened the window and then, oh, there's my headline. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, folks. Well, that's going to wrap it up for us tonight. We appreciate you taking the time to listen. Hope you found some value in it. If you have a moment, please take a moment and give us a review on iTunes. The more reviews we get, the better rankings we get. The more the show will rate and people will be able to find us and we can help more people. That's what we're here to do. If you have any questions you'd like to talk to Andrew and I about on air, we're open to that as well. That's what we're here for is to talk to you guys and see what we can do to help you learn more about investing, make some more money, and have a better retirement. So without any further ado, we thank you for taking the time to listen. And you guys have a great week and we'll see you next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.